Catholic pilgrimage sites offer us a wealth of understanding into the way the sacred is perceived in the modern world. Find out more with historian Sky Doney after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Hello and welcome back to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. I'm fascinated by the prevalence and power of pilgrimages in the history of Christianity. Even today, millions of Christians travel every year to visit historic sites invested with spiritual meaning and power. I met today's guest, Sky Doni, in Jerusalem while we were both studying at the Hebrew University. While I was writing my dissertation on evangelicals in Israel, Sky helped me think through why evangelicals travel in such numbers to the Holy Land. I'm excited to introduce you to my good friend, Sky who is a historian and scholar of Catholic pilgrimages in 19th and 20th century Germany. Sky's work is a master class in cultural history, detailed and nuanced analyses of how people from all rungs of society experienced the sacred while on pilgrimage. We explore the pilgrimages and relics and ask how these practices relate to a broader religious context in the modern period. Sky Doni is the director of the George L. Mossy Program in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. The book that we discussed is titled The Persistence of the Sacred, German Catholic Pilgrimage, 1832 to 1937, which is being published this month. Please enjoy my Upwards conversation with Sky Doni. So Sky, thanks for uh, joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, I, I want to get into the main uh, conversation here where we're going to talk about your book, The Persistence of the Sacred, German Catholic Pilgrimage, 1832 to 1937. Um, and we're going to talk about some of the main themes in the book. But before that, just wanted to uh, get on record or, or get to know uh, why you got interested in this topic in particular. And uh, so we'll start with just uh, what brought you to study Catholic history? Well, I guess it was like a lot of historians. I had a really, I had a, a, a professor that was incredibly influential on me. So when I was at, I did my undergraduate education at West Virginia University, and I originally wanted to study law and be involved in family law. But my sophomore year, I took a class on Hitler and the Third Reich with Professor Catherine Oselstad. She's a she was a dynamic teacher, extremely engaging. She had these awesome reading assignments, a lot of diaries, for example. And so the next year, I took another class with her on Revolutionary Europe on the 19th century, and I liked that class even more. And so it was only shortly into that second class that I knew I would not be heading to law school. Uh, And instead, working with Professor Oselstad, who became my advisor, I decided to apply to graduate programs. And I was generally interested in the history of religion. I wrote an undergraduate thesis, for example, on Bishop Oxnum and McCarthyism. So, sort of the intersection of that's much more in your yeah, that's field an American than mine. Topic, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I was interested in politics and history and how they they come together. And so, I ultimately came to work with Rudy Koshar at UW Madison. But when I arrived, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to study. Just something in ge- in German history and something uh, on the history of Christianity. Um, in the course of doing my 
my coursework and getting ready for exams, I read a book that I really liked by Michael Gross on anti-Catholic politics mm -hmm. in the 19th century and how important the stereotype of the Catholic, the Catholic in quotes, was for forming German identity. So as Germany unified in the late 19th century, 1871, there's this Catholic minority group mm -hmm. in the Rhineland and also in the South and some in the Far East, surrounded predominantly by Protestant officials and a very small Jewish minority, about 1% of the population. So Gross explored what do liberal Protestants, and this has nothing to do with liberal Protestantism today in the States, right, right. Uh, but what, what does this group say about Catholics and how does that help them define themselves against, mm -hmm. against this group? So through Gross, I decided I wanted to work on something related to, to German Catholics. Very interesting. Can you, uh, just backing up to coming to UW, um, I think a lot of people um, come to come to Madison uh, for school, and it the reasons depend on the discipline you're in. What made UW particularly interesting as a place to do graduate work? Well, there were other historians that I could work with that were also experts on the history of religion, including uh, Lee Wandel, mm -hmm. uh, Lee Palmer Wandel in the history department, and Michael Shank uh, in the history of science department. So there was a cluster of faculty interested in 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 the history of religion that that I could work with. Um, yeah, and that that might highlight for people who who aren't in the know that um, that's actually been one of the for decades that's been a strong suit. Yeah. That, UW is um, history of the Reformation, uh, history of um, of European religion. So, uh, yeah. So there's a ton of. In fact, uh, earlier episodes uh, in the podcast, we talked to David Harrisville, uh, another um, uh, historian studying very similar things, um, a colleague of both Skies and mine at UW. Um, okay. Well, as uh, listeners probably heard from me listing the subtitle, German Catholic Pilgrimage. Um, pilgrimage is, is the center sky of what you study. What, um, of all the things you could study in Catholic history, what really attracted you about pilgrimage? Well, it's like any project, sort of an accident. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to, after finishing my coursework, I went to Germany to do, to do work in archives. And what I was originally interested in looking at was the things that priests said about German unification and about the German nation. So sort of inspired by Gross, what do Catholics have to say about, about this Protestant state and how do they find, how do they find a place in it? Mm -hmm. uh, so I was in the Rhineland in Cologne and I came across all of these references to pilgrimages in Aachen, which is a short train ride away. Mm. So I went to Aachen, and in the cathedral archive, there were all of these fascinating letters from individuals starting in 1832 who had traveled to see four relics in Aachen, which are all held in one shrine. If you go to Aachen, you can actually see the shrine on display in the cathedral. But those four relics are the garment of the Blessed Mother of Mary, the swaddling clothes of Jesus, the decapitation cloth of John the Baptist, and the loincloth from Jesus's crucifixion. Mm -hmm. And they're all wrapped up and they're held in this gold case and they're brought out every seven years mm -hmm. for a pilgrimage. So I just started to get into those boxes and those files. And what, one thing that I noticed was that between the 1830s and the 1930s, a lot of the concerns of the pilgrims remained consistent. Mm -hmm. So they were going on pilgrimage because they were sick mm -hmm. or because they hoped that one of their loved ones would convert to Catholicism or they were unemployed 
or they had all of these very worldly concerns that they thought in some way going on this trip would help them overcome or would would make right. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting about that, thinking about, I mean, the 1830s to the 1930s is an incredibly volatile century in European history and in German history. This is, like I mentioned before, the unification of Germany takes place. There's also the revolutions in 1848, revolution in 1919, following the upheaval of the First World War. So you have multiple regime changes from monarchy to republic to the Nazi Third Reich. Mm-hmm. But then you also have all of these changes in transportation. Aachen, mm-hmm. for example, is connected to the main European railways uh, during this time. You have changes in manufacturing. Uh, so, but the pilgrims themselves seem to want the same things, whether they're walking in the 1830s or they're arriving by a train in the 1930s. So that's why persistence, there's this persistence, hope. there's this persistent hope of going, going on a pilgrimage. So as I, as I got into, into the Aachen correspondence and into Aachen pilgrimage, I decided there's another very famous relic uh, mm-hmm. in the region in Trier, which is the Holy Coat of Jesus, the garment that Jesus, um, I should mention these. So Aachen and Trier, these are sort of Western. They're far Germany. west. Yeah, they're close to the very, French very border. nice place to live and do yeah, research. Right? They are. Okay. That's, that's <laughs> absolutely the case. Yes. Uh, one uh, of the perks of studying uh, maybe German pilgrimage is you get to hang out in Germany a lot. Yeah, right? and Trier, for example, you have these beautiful vineyards all around the city. Yeah, they make this yeah. great drink called Feets from apples. Anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, not. Not suffering right, uh, while, right, while working yeah. in the archive. Of all the places, it, we, you think of um, so many people go out to so many parts of the globe. Um, if you can find the excuse to be in Germany, particularly the Rhineland, it seems like a smart, uh, smart life choice, smart career move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, I mean, it's ideal weather. You have easy access to all these interesting places. Um, That's right. Sorry, I took you off. No, uh, it's fine. Trier. 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 So Trier has has another very famous relic, the Holy Coat of Jesus. Mm. And that pilgrimage takes place much less frequently, not every seven years like Aachen. So they had one in 1810, 1844, Mm. 1891, and then 1933. So I also went to Trier to look at those, those files and at the correspondence that had survived from pilgrims who wanted to go go to pilgrimage. And there I found more interesting parallels with, with, with the, the concerns of the pilgrims going to Aachen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, as you're talking, there's so many layers to, um, what pilgrimage could be, um, or what, what pilgrimage can open up about, um, a broader thinking through of Catholicism in this, uh, century plus, um, and of German history as well. So you, you got to maybe one of the core uh, arguments you're making. The, the book is titled The Persistence of the Sacred. And um, I think you, I want to actually spend a little more time unpacking um, the, the, the sort of persistence in contrast to all of the changes in uh, European society and German society in particular. So you mentioned um, the German unification in 1871. So before 1871, we don't talk about a German nation in the, in the, or nation state at least. Um, and that might be, um, you know, wrapping your head around that. If, if that, if you're not aware of that history, um, the nation state of Germany is relatively young. Um, by that point, the U S had been around for almost a century and the U S is a pretty young, uh, country as well. Um, so that's a huge shift. And then you mentioned, um, there's sort of all these political shifts, 
there's uh, transportation or technological shifts. Um, what are there any other major shifts that you're thinking through um, that are happening in this this century of history? Yeah, so the book's divided into two halves. There, there are three chapters that look at what pilgrims do and this, mm -hmm. this persistence of expectation, we could call it, mm -hmm. in the realm of like the items that they buy or that they acquire and what those mean to them when they go on pilgrimage. Also in miracle culture. Mm. So the idea that they could, that a pilgrim going to Aachen or, could, or to Trier could experience some sort of physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological, some sort of transformation that they would be changed through this experience. And they're meaning miracle in a pretty literal, yeah. like there's some intervention from the supernatural yeah. realm. Yeah. Okay. So this, but it does range. So it can yeah. range from like trauma from a mm. war, hoping that that somehow you'll be able to get over those memories to uh, that I have a, the case of the parent who goes because their son has a haircut being stuck in his ear and that nothing they do can get it out. Yeah, and one so of the more disgusting uh, <laughs> vignettes in the, in the yeah. book. <laughs> uh, and then there's a chapter on general practices, the prayers, mm. the songs, the routes that the processions take um, mm. uh, surrounding pilgrimage. Then looking, thinking about change over time, what was interesting in Aachen and Trier, thinking about change over time is it largely is coming from the clergy mm. who are responding to these external pressure events, including German unification, but also even before the revolution in 1848, from criticism of pilgrimage from within the, the clergy. Mm. Uh, so there's a chapter, for example, on a cleric who quits the church and launches this range of pamphlet attacks on Trier specifically. Mm saying that in the 19th century, we should no longer have pilgrimage. This mm -hmm. is a superstitious act. It's obvious that the relic is a forgery. It's obvious no one's going to be healed by touching it. Mm -hmm. It's that this is just an attempt by the clergy to enrich themselves. In response to these critiques, the clergy change pilgrimage in a lot of interesting ways. So mm -hmm. thinking again about, about miracle culture, in the early 19th century, anyone could just walk up and touch these relics, and especially in Trier, you just go up the altar, touch the relic. There are lots of descriptions of extremely uh, charismatic or <laughs> um, emotional events happening before the relic. People, mm -hmm. you can imagine people throwing down crutches, tossing their canes, um, claiming like instantaneous cure on the site, and then this being fostered by the clergy, for example, in in the press. In response to the critiques, all of a sudden, in, in, the, in, in both places, you have new restrictions on the relics uh, after 1844. For example, you need a note from a physician that says you're actually sick. Mm. And, the, and that all the things the physician could think of to make you better have not worked. And then to undercut critique in the, in the mid-19th century, you also need a note from a priest that mm. says you're in good standing. You're a Catholic, uh, a regularly devout practicing Catholic as like proof. And then instead of having these, these encounters with the relic in the very public way, there are special times set up before dawn where the sick can come into the cathedral and mm -hmm. touch the relic and have this very um, sort of behind closed doors encounter with the, with the bishops and with the clergy and the relics. Um, so that's one of the interesting changes over time. And this new and thinking about how, how the clergy themselves are acting as agents of modernization or agents of 
uh, fostering this new 19th century. At the same time, uh, another part of the book looks at authenticity. Mm. What, what does it mean to be echt, to be real, mm. like, to prove that a relic is real? Well, for the pilgrims themselves, it largely comes down to results. Mm. Does the holy coat still heal? Can the relics of the Moriah Shrine still improve my life in a very interesting way, a tactile way? For clergy, like all of a sudden they're cutting off pieces of the relics and they're sending them to experts for fiber analyses, for chemical analysis, to say, this has made a material that could have come from Palestine in the first century. Yeah. It's not unreasonable to say that this could be a real relic. And so they have these sort of scientific lines of inquiry, but then also historical lines of inquiry, consulting with archeologists and uh, textile experts to, and going through the cathedral records themselves to say, okay, it's pretty clear that Charlemagne acquired these and da 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 to mm -hmm. show that they have a clear lineage um, going all the way back. And then also, to situate themselves, I didn't abandon completely the political argument about what happens with unification, because in response to anti-Catholic sentiment after unification, in Aachen, they say, actually, we're the real Germans, because we go back to Charlemagne. Charlemagne starts the Reich, that we are the Germans. And then in Trier, they say, well, we go back even further, <laughs> because it's Constantine's mother who brings the Holy Coat of Trier from the Holy Land to, to our cathedral. And so we are the real, we're, we're such real Germans that we go all the way back to Rome uh, before the Holy Roman Empire. So, the, so at that point, the relics themselves, the object of the pilgrimages, take on this sort of nationalist uh, yeah. argument. So as you've been describing this, one thing, this is, this is why um, I think your work is so interesting and why pilgrimage is so interesting, because you get into sort of the details, the particular illnesses, the particular concerns, the particular way priests were sort of trying to defend or, or fend off those concerns. If we pulled back and, and thought about maybe the intellectual or cultural shifts that are happening more broadly, it seems like on top of the political story, on top of the tech or transportation story, there's also this intellectual cultural sea change from 1830s to 1930s that you know, is informed by really big things like the Enlightenment, um, more narrower things like particular thinkers or or debates happening in the Catholic Church um, or in Germany that are causing, at least among clergy um, and the, the broader maybe educated class, like a skepticism around the received views of of relics of of what's happening. Um, and are you with the persistence of the sacred? Is what you found that? Um, is there any shift on the lay side or the people that are coming that, are, that have these diseases, that have these concerns? Um, could you pluck one out from 1832 and one from 1937 and mix them up and not know who's who? Or is there, is there change over time there as well? That is a lot harder to get at with, with the sources mm. available. For example, um, looking these the sources that I have for the concerns of of the pilgrims themselves. That's a self selected group, right. in a way. They're the people who have taken time to write to the clergy about 
why they would like to go, or in some cases, why they cannot go, mm-hmm. and what they would like the clergy to do for them during the event itself. Uh, so that that's a limitation. But if we think, for example, going back to the the miracle culture and this mm-hmm. requirement that you need to have special forms or whatever, what I can say is that the number of individuals asking for time with the relic gets larger and larger and larger between mm-hmm. the 1830s and the 1930s to the point that by 1933 in Trier, they have a, a special form, a Fragebogen, that you have to have a physician filled out, fill out on your behalf. And there are thousands, mm. I mean, uh, probably 18 to 20,000 of these forms in the, in the archive. Uh, so this is a massive group of people um, hoping for some sort of physical transformation. Um, at the same time, there are like interesting differences in how relics or how pilgrims can encounter relics or how they can commemorate their their trips. We talked about, I mean, by the 1930s, there's a huge problem with people who have their own cars and mm-hmm. show up and the priest can't really figure out how many people are going to be here on a day-to-day basis because they can't rely on the train schedule. They can't rely on the chartered bus schedules. Yeah. There are too many <laughs> there's an independence of movement that's new from 1891 in, in Germany. Uh, so that's one of the transformations. And then in the, at the beginning of the 19th century, there are all of these really interesting handmade commemorative items from like hand-carved pipes with the, with the, uh, the Aachen relics. Uh, by the 1930s, there's a lot of like mass-produced standardized items, rosaries, different types of cards, and there's an, a proliferation of, of items that are available um, through changes in, in the economy. But what the pilgrims are saying about those medals, cards, rosaries, et cetera, isn't changing. Mm-hmm. doesn't in necessarily what they, what they still would like are for those items to touch the relic. Right. And that in some way brings them closer to the sacred, to the Holy Family or to the history of the church. It's, it's a, a, a something you can touch. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's an interesting part of the, the story. Right. Um, so, and I think the way you've described that by the 1930s, there's things that we might recognize as part of our culture today, you know, uh, driving being primary mode of transportation, mass produced religious items or religious culture. Um, so you're getting something that is more resembling later 20th century, um, religious culture, even in the U S. Um, so we've been talking a lot about, um, this sort of tension between change and, and persistence, uh, over time. The other part of your title is of the sacred. So, um, you know, we've circled around it a lot of the, we've talked about miracle culture, a few other things. What do you, um, what do you define as the sacred or what are you, um, sort of what is persisting yeah, <laughs> through time? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Well, let's talk about clergy first. Uh, the sacred in terms of the relics and in terms of these two places, because obviously the sacred can mean almost anything, depending on your chronology, geography, um, etc. But for the for the the clergy themselves, what what you get from the relics it changes from the 1830s, which is an authentic encounter with something that touched a, someone in the Holy Family mm. or John the Baptist, to by the end, they use the language of symbol. This reminds us 
of, of the Blessed Mother. This reminds us of Jesus's sacrifice on the cross or of Jesus's birth or John the Baptist's execution. Less emphasis on this being the really real, as, as Robert Orsi would call it, of, of right. presence, of the sacred. Um, for pilgrims, the sacred, I think about it in terms of concentric circles, the closer that they can get to the object, uh, the better, mm. or the, the, the closer they are to, to something that we can't really describe, something related to, to, to their faith, something related to the divine, some sort of crossing over into um, the, the supernatural made natural mm -hmm. in, in the world, uh, similar to if you think about Christian theology of Jesus's body uh, or right. Jesus's person. So, uh, for example, if a pilgrim cannot travel, what they often would write is, I'm sending you X, whether it's a family ring or a card or a picture of, of the relic. Can you touch it to mm. the object, the holy coat or the Marian shrine, and then send it back to me? So the sacred is a, in terms of pilgrimage is about getting closer to it. And it's physically located somewhere. Yeah. Um, even if there's an understanding that it's not necessarily authentic there's something about you just have to go and part of the sacrifice or part of getting making the journey gets you closer to it um so you're, you're holding to um and this probably comes out of your sources because there's, there's 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 sources that are sort of from the bottom up right these are people who aren't trained theologians who aren't uh don't have a degree in biblical studies or anything um the definition of the sacred is um and I don't mean this in a dismissive way, but there's sort of like a folk aspect to it, which is there is something going on. It, it, it may not be able to be captured in a confessional statement. Um, and it has all these sort of interesting rules about like, how is it transferred? How powerful, you know, sort of like the closer you are, the more powerful the sacred is. Um, and so are you saying that sort of that um, in the book, you use sort of economic language sometimes to talk about the sacred as well? Is that system of the sacred persisting through this time? So again, if you could pull someone out from 1830s and then the 1930s, are they understanding those sort of rules in a similar way? Whereas maybe on the clergy side, the theology is changing, or at least the way uh, the apologetics of, of the relics and other things, those are changing. Um, but yeah, are the, are the, is the sort of lay folk understanding of the sacred, is that sort of what's persisting? Is this, one, this certain way of understanding it that def that gets outside of any formal theological um, way of talking about it. I think so, and it's you know what does change. Also, I guess they're like uh, thinking about change over time for the pilgrims themselves. Is that by the the twentieth century they're receiving letters from Brazil, from Ohio, mm. from Pennsylvania. A lot of Germans who used to live in the Rhineland and have left, but also just people who have fallen on hard times and have heard about this event that's about to take place, uh, and think that in some way that that's sacred, that's there, that's about to be unveiled and mm -hmm. to be made accessible for the first time in 30 years or seven years, in some way could tip the balance mm -hmm. or change something that's, that's hard in their lives or that's, that's hard on their person, mm -hmm. um, if that makes sense. And thinking, I mean, your example of like plucking someone from the 1830s and the 1930s, I don't think they would see the cities at all the same. I mean, sure, the, the, yeah. that changed, those both yeah. places changed dramatically. Um, 
the homilies that they hear, they would be surprised by a lot of things that have happened mm. uh, are different. But what they write about what they expect is is persisting. Right. Um, right. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, I would say um, that persistence, I think you could trace to today in the sense that uh, and it's not just Catholics. I mean, th there's a way that you might, if you're not a Catholic, you might dismiss this as like a, a distinctly, and there's definitely distinctly Catholic aspects um, to what you're describing. But there's often this assumption that Protestants are the ones who don't care about relics, who don't care about space. Um, there's plenty of examples of where that's not, not true. Um, everything from the heightened excitement of going to the Holy Land. Um, if you were a you know, totally consistent Protestant, that excitement would be purely intellectual or historical but often there's also a spiritual um dimension to it to the d the different ways we treat um you know sacred sacred or valued items in our home that there's a heightened value to them or something even uh unquantifiable about them and so this is within that spectrum and i think that um that's call it folk call it sort of bottom-up way of thinking um uh, is still pretty active for many, many Americans. Not even ones who would even call themselves Christians necessarily. Um, the sort of spiritual but not religious camp has similar <laughs> dynamics to it, yeah. I would say. About the sacred being somewhere right. or accessible in some way and often involving you need to go to it right. in, in an interesting way. Thinking about objects, I mean, during the pamphlet debates of the 1840s, one of the Catholic critiques against their Protestant detractors is, you guys care where Luther translated the Bible. Mm. I mean, you care about like these physical places. You care about the first editions of the translation there. You have uh, as much of an emotional or a spiritual attachment to things in this world as we do. And, but ours are a lot better because they're older. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, on the, but on the flip side too, you described how um, there was maybe, at least for some of the pilgrims, a changing understanding of what exactly um, the sacred power is. So you, you sort of a move from, uh, a move towards symbol. And that reminds me of, a, a move Protestants move, do a lot around the Eucharist, around baptism, other things that those become, and these are, you know, major debates between Protestants and Catholics over the centuries. Those become more symbolic, uh, sacraments, or maybe not even using the phrase sacrament, depending on your tradition. Um, when at one point those were seen as sort of very, uh, uh, you know, in intersections of the divine with, um, with the church. So it's interesting because there's also movement on the Catholic, like none of this stuff is unique for either Protestants or Catholics. I guess it's a matter of emphasis and where you're looking. Um, okay. I want to move to think about, um, uh, Sky, how you, how you've told this story. Um, but how other people have told this story. So in other ways, you know, you're responding to scholarship that um, has maybe not come to the same conclusions as you have on the persistence question um, or on the pilgrimage question. So what are the other ways people, uh, scholars in particular, have talked about pilgrimage in this period um, and, and maybe the secular sacred uh, balance? Um, and I'm thinking particularly here of, of sort of the secularization thesis that many people are familiar with, which is basically there's a decline in religious observance, religious belief over the 19th and 20th century. Um, yeah, if you could just give voice to sort of the people you're uh, responding to and then, and then what you think about that narrative in light of what you've written. Well, in some ways, 
that narrative, this, if we're going to make a caricature here or even a straw person. To, Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Well, that narrative works on some level, depending mm. on the sources that you use. So sure. just yeah. a couple of examples, mass attendance does decline mm. between the 1830s and the 1930s. There are fewer people turning up week after week. And there are a lot of reasons for that in urban areas in Germany. One of them is that there are not enough clergy with the mm. population explosions. It's not, mm. they, they're completely outmatched. Uh, at the same time, who seems to be showing up regularly are not necessarily Catholic men. Mm. And so this, this is part of this, this same straw person argument that there's a feminization of right. religion that's taking place over the, over the course of the century right. as well. What I, what, I'm lucky to have found are like some sources that problematize both stories. Yeah. And so thinking about the, the feminization as, as an annex to this other argument thesis, maybe men are not at mass every week, but they are still participating in their faith in interesting ways. Mm -hmm. For example, they want to guard the relics in the Rhineland, the Vereine, the Catholic Schützenvereine. They want to be seen as guardians of the sacred. So when the Nazis, for example, come to power in 1933, the Schützenvereine are really put out that it's the SA who are put in charge of like public security mm -hmm. and of standing watch in, in, the, in, the, in the cathedral. At the same time, when the relics are paraded through the city, those same Catholic men want to be seen with the relics. Mm -hmm. they, they write very adamantly that they be incorporated as whatever organization they are, as public participants in the event. And then what is even more lucky with the source base, I think, is there are many men who write that they would like to be healed, mm -hmm. but they don't proclaim themselves healed. Mm. So when, when bishops are putting together the official lists of cured, men are not likely to be on those, but they are likely to be highly represented, up to 30% of the people who want to, to touch the relics in order to have some sort of physical transformation. Mm. So that problematizes in one way. Yeah. Uh, thinking about like decline in in and de decline in in religious participation over time between the 1830s and the 1930s these events only become more popular there are mm -hmm. over 2 million people in Trier in 1933 for example so they're they're, they're they they buck that trend in an interesting way they just get bigger and bigger um if that makes sense and then uh like uh, as i was saying before the narrative can does work depending on the sources that you're using but looking at like the images that the the pilgrims collect looking at the letters they send the pamphlets they support it just leads to a different a different kind of conclusion right. um i think you need both to make sense of what's going on uh, but that would be you know a thousand page book right right uh, so right, right. Um, I guess this is a good place to ask, um, why the years 1832 and 1937? What's special about those two years? Well, 1832, just uh, 1832 makes sense because the relics come back from being in exile from the French Revolution and French mm -hmm. occupation. So they're brought back, they're in hiding further to the west and mm -hmm. they're brought back. And then I end in 1937 with this big event in Aachen right before um, the Second World, two years before the Second World War starts, because there's pretty consistent 
correspondence and practice between the 1830s and the 1930s. So there are disruptions. 1923, no Aachen event because French soldiers are occupying the region. And during right the first World War One, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and during the First World War, no event. Right. Although the clergy looks like secretly bring out the relics and and pray hmm. quietly over them for the the end of host, the cessation of hostilities and for the safety of the their sons and the the sons of the city in the in the war. After the Second World War, the cathedrals are bombed during the conflict. The, the region is again occupied. So I have a coda at the end of the book about this 1945 incident where American soldiers find the Aachen relics in a copper mine in Siegen, where they've been hidden along with a lot of artwork and other treasures. You can think of Monuments Men as mm -hmm. this popular uh, explication of some of these stories and some of the caches that are discovered. And the, the American military commander tells the bishop that he's going to have a pilgrimage, but the cathedral's bombed out and everything's exposed. And a lot of the, the traditions around opening the reliquary can't take place and people can't travel to participate. And so I end with just a question, which is what happens to, to the sacred in the area after the Second World War? And I think that's a book someone else needs to needs to work on or needs to write uh, because there there is something disruptive of this catholic sacred practice in in the second world war um, so for instance the pilgrimages continue but they don't draw nearly the crowds mm. i mean like a fourth of what they had in 1933 on a good pilgrimage mm. so is, so are they, um, these major pilgrims, pilgrimages in Aachen and Trier, are they still happening? Yeah. Yeah. So there's been another delay because of the COVID-19 mm. pandemic. So the one that was supposed to take place two years ago in Aachen will now take place next summer in, mm. in 2023. And Trier last had an event in 2012, and there's no regularity with mm. those. It's just, they're usually 20 to 30 years apart. So. Okay. And, and you're saying that they're... Um, they're still active, but it's a much smaller uh, group of people who go there um, than in, in your period. Um, and I don't, I didn't investigate why that's the case. I conclude with those those numbers and right. with this 1945 event, but I think that someone still needs to offer a different an explanation for what happens after after 45. Sure, because there's also, I mean, there's there's much there's still popular tour or. Uh, pilgrimage routes throughout Europe yeah, absolutely. Um, that are not necessarily these ones. And yeah. So those persist. Yeah. Um, I guess that, that gets on to maybe a last question to wrap up um, the conversation around pilgrimage. Um, how, uh, how, do you, how contextual do you see your story um, to Germany and this period? Um, and how much can, can what you've written sort of illuminate for, for us as we're thinking about other pilgrimages um, around Europe, around the globe? Um, did you give any thought, like, is this really a story about German Catholics? Um, or were you thinking more broadly about Catholic religiosity or even sort of a more universal Christian uh, religiosity? Well, in some ways, it's really unique in the way that the events take place, for example, because the other, other popular shrines, you think about like Compostela mm -hmm. or Luard, those are always available. And so mm. that's a different kind of sacred center. I think because they're not, a generation hasn't passed since the event last took place. 
Uh, and what we do know is that those sites remain extremely popular in terms of, of religiosity. I mean, Ruth Harris wrote a great book in 1999 about like, the limits of what the historian can conclude, uh, including she went on on a, on a pilgrimage down to Luad from where she was. Uh, anyway, yeah. So it's it is unique. And it's and it is pretty specific, and I it's important to also understand that pilgrimage is one of a lot of interesting uh, religiosities that proliferate through the century. I mean, there's a rise in interest in the occult, which mm. Tritel is Corinna Tritel is written about. Uh, obviously, the Third Reich is based on a lot of this problematic mythology of Norse Norse mythology, but also the myth of the German nation. Um, so there's there are these spiritual transformations mm -hmm. taking place, and they're all like simultaneous with the with the change over time. And so pilgrimage is one of those stories. It's one way that people anchored themselves in a rapidly changing society and culture. Right, right. That makes total sense. Um, I think I I want to just talk about a broader question, which is the relationship between. The story you've told and particularly the the sort of sacred and the political and we talked about that at the beginning about the changes versus the the consistency um but sky i hope you could talk just for a couple minutes about how previous uh, scholars have thought about um pilgrimage and as i gather from uh, your research that's often been assuming there's sort of a social or political impetus at least if not totally the primary way to think about what's happening at a pilgrimage um, and, and that's not what you found as, as we've talked about. So, um, yeah, just talk a bit about the, the existing understanding of pilgrimage and where you differ. Okay. Well, I guess I'm like two points and I'll start with the more recent and then I'll go to the, the, the further past. Uh, there's a, a robust local historiography in both places of 33 and mm -hmm. 37 as rebukes to the Nazi regime. Mm. Uh, that this, these are the Catholics saying the reason that those two events are so large is they're saying we want a different kind of religiosity and we want Catholic practice to be safe and preserved in the Third Reich. And that may be the clerical goal, but that is not reflected in the correspondence of the participants themselves. Mm. They're not thinking about the Third Reich in these ways, in these strictly political ways. Um, so when they're just to just to lay it out. So when um, if the understanding is these pilgrimages get very large because that's that's sort of a political statement against the regime. Yeah. What you find in the actual sort is like that's not the top of mind for most yeah. people going there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's one sort of tension right. within within right. A, like a strictly political understanding versus versus looking at what pe what the actual participants are saying about why they're going. Um, that should be nuanced mm -hmm. of course because mm -hmm. i mean, i've written myself about the tensions in 33 for example the bishops don't want nazi uniforms mm -hmm. all over the cathedral square and they don't want nazi uniforms in the cathedral but they can't do anything about mm -hmm. it and the third reich also puts up all these barriers for crossing the border and what mm -hmm. currency you can bring so it's hard for their for french catholics to come across and participate mm -hmm. in 33. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's sort of yes, but. Uh, right, right. And then thinking about the, the some of the earlier, the 1830s, the 1840s, and I know we're jumping around, uh, but thinking about those events, uh, one interpretation would be, look at how orderly these events are. The clergy must have these 
pilgrims well in hand. Mm. They're falling in. They're, they, we've got these great processions from Kocham to Trier. It's pretty clear that, that um, the new enlightened clergy uh, has the flock um, mm. under its thumb. Mm. But if you look at what, what the pilgrims actually want from the event, what they say, there are these tensions between what like that public facing right and right. what's happening sort of in the mood of catholicism among the laity the they they haven't they're not following like the teachings strictly i mean maybe there's public order in in a way but right that that only takes you so far right okay so there's there's definitely nuance to be had if if there's going to be a sort of really instrumental reading of history of religion um in these cases that um I, I've experienced this looking, uh, I mean, this is a, a hot debate in the um, historiography I engage with on American evangelicalism, is particularly interpreting much more recent history and the, the Christian right political engagement. Like how much of evangelicalism is really about politics and how much of it is about something that you call the sacred or the theological or something that is somehow beyond the human interests um, at play. And I guess I come down, you know, that, that it's a mix, of course, uh, only, you know, the people that you always cite are the ones that really take a very strong position on these. But, um, but it definitely, you know, it, it really, the, the rubber meets the road on when you're reading particular events or particular, you know, um, uh, smaller granular, um, developments and trying to understand what's actually driving people here is, um, uh, I guess for an example, like, like the pilgrimage, you know, how, how do we talk about, um, a 1933 or 1937 pilgrimage without talking about what's going on, um, in German politics? Um, and yet is that, can you reduce the whole thing to just an epiphenomenon, um, uh, or that the religious part is epiphenomenal of the political situation? So these are the really interesting, uh, conversations that, uh, historian, not just historians, um, I, I noticed you've you you think a lot about uh, the the scholarship around tourism um, or pilgrimage and tourism and what the difference between those two are. Um, so it's not just historians, but thinking about um, how does the religion intersect with all these other factors uh, that are at play um, in any given situation. Um, okay, I wanted to just end with a couple more uh, practical questions or takeaway questions. Um, one is Sky, you're a teacher, um, you've taught at UW and other schools, uh, for many years now. Um, how do you think about teaching religion, um, at a college level? Uh, what do you think of, what do most students come in with in terms of background on this? Um, and how do you try to sort of meet them halfway so they can appreciate, um, you know, the significance of what you study and think about? Well, I get I would say that there's not necessarily an, any assumption about ro what religion is or what the sacred is when students uh, come into a European history class. That's mm -hmm. that's they have a sense of what it means to be Catholic or what it means to be Protestant. The main thing that I would want that I try to get across is that religion is one very important variable with politics, with structural and social changes, with mm -hmm. a lot of the different things we've been talking about for understanding just the foreign nature of the past that it's one thing that really animated 
people and the decisions that they made and illuminated their dreams and their desires that it helped shape their goals for for this type of society they wanted to live in how they thought of the ideal family mm. uh, on on like very personal ways like that religion was there along with other concerns um and that's the main thing that i would want them to take away is it's it's central do you ever find yourself um uh trying to myth bust um with so i can imagine that there's caricatures in i mean i think most people unless they are personally in um unless they're a scholar or someone deeply invested in a particular tradition um i mean where do we get most of our opinions on this stuff from popular culture from reading news and stuff and so there's definitely caricatures of catholics of protestants of of others um yeah, is there any myth busting you do or, or sort of things you want to make sure as you go into the classroom? Like I, I make sure I want to make sure they don't continue to think if they do this about um, about Catholicism or about religion in general. Well, most recently, I you have to, I would have to first construct the myths, it seems to me that mm -hmm. they're not coming in with like that thinking back to Michael Gross, like the Catholic right. or the right. Protestant. They're not coming in with those those same understandings uh, anymore. Yeah. So it's not necessarily myth busting. So I would have to first create the myth in their mind, and that would be counter. counter yeah, that's an interesting teaching goals. method that yeah, probably isn't good. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's maybe it's just, um, or you know, maybe the myth in some ways is that religion doesn't matter, or some, or, or that 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 people, um, or maybe it's just enlightening people that there are people who this is the most important thing historically that has animated their life or these certain beliefs or these certain institutions that have shaped who they are. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay. What so, about, I'm going to flip that back yes. to you because you've just taught and on much more present concerns than anything that I teach. Do you find that you have to break myths when you yeah. teach religion? Yeah. So you're talking about, I just taught at UW's history department. Um, uh, a reading seminar for undergrads called uh, religion and politics in the in 20th century u.s history and um i definitely you know we we ranged over a lot of issues and there were things we were learning on specific histories around so one that we spent a lot of time on not knowing necessarily that there would be a major supreme court decision about it but we spent a lot of time on abortion and um activism on both sides of that issue in the 20th century and I think one of the major um, uh, revelations to a number of students was just um, how today abortion seems like an issue most passionately held by conservative Catholics and evangelicals. And that if you go back before the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, it was largely progressive Catholics or, or sort of liberal Catholics who were the major uh, acti activists, organizers around um, what was called the pro-life movement. Um, that scrambles a lot of students' understandings of sort of what are the root insights or motives for the for opposing abortion. So that that's one example. We did a lot around um, race and religion, and uh, the last book we read is called Meatpacking America, which looked at actually very contemporary Catholicism in the Midwest, and particularly in Iowa, and particularly looking at uh, meatpacking plants and the way that religion intersected with labor and with communities of immigrants. And most of the students in the class were from Wisconsin or neighboring states, and they had uh, just a lot of uh, surprises and uh, sort of revelations about 
uh, how diverse the Catholic Church is now, particularly with the decline in traditional sort of white Catholic observance, and how m- many places the Catholic Church is entirely uh, represented in in places like Iowa by immigrants uh, from uh, Asia and uh, Central and South America. Um, so that was a in a way that's a myth bust in the in the sense of getting rid of some stereotype of who is Catholic in American history or today um, and and realizing that that's if that ever was true that it was mostly Irish and and Italian immigrants or something like that it's certainly not true today and so we need to be thinking about what does Catholicism mean in these very different ways Mm -hmm. Um, so those are a few of the ways I would say you know in, in that particular class most of the students were um, as I mentioned, from Wisconsin, most of them had some background in either Lutheranism or Catholicism, and that reflects Wisconsin's religious history as well. So they came in with uh, some familiarity with these traditions. Um, I wouldn't speak to where they're at when they were in the class, but um, but that really helped the conversation as well. So when we talked about things like confirmation, almost everyone in the room uh, knew what that was. Um, if they didn't, the students spoke up and had a lot of uh, colleagues who could tell them uh, what that was. Um, not many of them were evangelical um, or would identify as that way. And so I come out of that tradition. I write about that tradition. Uh, that's a tradition that's been very political. And we, we read a good amount about um, evangelicalism. And so I got to do some you know, teaching on, on what that exactly means. Um, and, um, and so I think there's a little, if there's myth busting, but myth busting there too. So um, but I'll go back to something I said before. It's uh, it's um, possibly much more easier for an American historian in who studies the 20th century to make these connections to, um, you know, to to, to meet students where they're at because they read news, they understand some of these issues. Uh, much harder when you're talking about 1850s Germany, uh, yeah, <laughs> or, or not even Germany at that point, but 1850s Europe, um, where uh, there's obviously still relevance, but there's like you know, three connections you have to make to, to get to the present. Um, well, thanks for letting me monologue uh, no, for a minute there, Scott. That was interesting. Um, I wanted to end on a question we ask all of our guests, um, at least the ones who have books uh, that come out when we talk to them. And that is acknowledging that Upper House has a largely Christian audience. Um, and we're, as you were writing this book, I noticed that um, you had a Schopenhauer quote at the front of the book that I think has a religious uh, flavor to it. Um, and I'll read that quote in a, a second. But the question is, do you have any particular ways you hope Christians in 2022 listening to this will understand your work? Um, and the quote from Schopenhauer is, every parting gives a foretaste of death, every reunion a hint of the resurrection. Um, I'm reading that as a Christian, so I'm thinking of resurrection and sort of the, and I think Schopenhauer was at least in a Christian culture. I don't think he was uh, that observant himself. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, so it seemed like there was some, uh, something on your mind, but how do you hope Christians read uh, the persistence of the sacred in any distinct way? I would just, I mean, in the broadest possible way to think about how, like where the sacred is, but also about how the, it's contested. Mm-hmm. And just to think about how individuals construct their own faith against what they're taught. So that there, mm. there might be an ideal uh, coming from from clergy or from pastors um, or from priests, but that that's not necessarily what's received. And mm. just to think about 
how that process takes place, because I don't think that's strictly limited to these sources. That's something that continues now. To, so Christianity as negotiation. Yes, that's, uh, that's great. And I, I'll just uh, add on, I think what, what your approach to this material does for me is really make me think about sources critically and realize that we often construct um, our stories around these things based on uh, what we take to be the universal perspective, but is really the perspective that writes more, uh, more organized or more structured ways. Um, and I think about that with my, uh, my own work. I think about most, um, ways we talk about the government. We talk about any social organization or institution. We go to the people who've written most clearly on that and most consistently on that. And that can often that's also a valid perspective to incorporate, but unless you do the cultural history of thinking about it from the pilgrim's perspective, you'll miss a lot. And I think your work shows that. And to, I mean, going back to Schopenhauer, when I was in, I, I was able to be in Trier in 2012 during the last pilgrimage, and they had these local features on individuals who had been at the last three pilgrimages, so 1933, mm -hmm. 1959, and then 2012. Oh. And many of them had the same medals that they had, collected from from the previous ones but the ways that they still talked about what it meant to see the coat even though it was the third time they'd mm -hmm. seen the holy coat of jesus it reminded me of schopenhauer about just the stakes for some of the participants then just the transcendent meaning of what of, of participating that's great all right well thanks guy for uh stopping in you're actually at upper house uh, we're talking uh, in our space so thanks for stopping by and thanks for the book yep thank you Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.